Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. Joining me today, Medical Director Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, everyone. And we're uh, recording live for our YouTube channel as well. So check us out there if you want to see a video version with some slide overlay. And today our episode is centering around really our third quarter CE topic here at MCHD. New protocol, new medication. This is one where, you know, space repetition and continued education is going to be necessary any situation when we roll out a new medicine or new protocol. And at MCHD, we're progressive, but we're progressive for the patient's sake. And that starts off with a clinical gap that we notice or see from run review or get from paramedic feedback. And those are the areas we target for improvement. And the drug and the protocol that we addressed here at MCHD just a couple weeks ago is our undifferentiated agitation patients, and we rolled out the medication Draperidol. And the implementation is, is really multifaceted. You know, availability plays a role here, and we'll touch on that later. It's not a drug that's been widely available for the last 15 years or so. Uh, the recent ketamine issues in Colorado, South Carolina, Minnesota, uh, they have definitely led to introspection for us as medical directors and for really EMS as a whole. And honestly, we feel like there's an opportunity to better target pharmacology in our undifferentiated agitation patients. And so we'll hit on all of those topics as we roll through, but let's start with the basics. What is droperidol? A lot of EMS folks out there probably aren't familiar with it. So describe droperidol to the listeners, Dr. Dixon. Right. So Casey, droperidol, guys, is a butyrophenone antipsychotic. So it's primarily... Its mechanism of action is it's a dopamine and serotonin receptor antagonist, I'm sorry. It's centrally acting. It's very similar to uh, Reglan and Zofran or Ondansetron, metoclopramide. Those are are synonymous. Um, So you're familiar with these anti-nausea medicines, these headache medicines like Reglan, like uh, Ondansetron or Zofran. uh, And these are, are cousins to it. Now, its other cousin, haloperidol, which everyone is very familiar with, uh, same mechanism of action. And you may be asking yourself, well, why not haloperidol? Yeah, and honestly, there are probably medics out there listening with haldol in their service. So um, that's one that when we initially started writing this protocol and thinking through what the med reference is going to look like, a reasonable question to ask is why not haldol? And the simple answer is timing. Timing of onset for droperidol is in the 5 to 10 minute range. Haldol, you're looking at 15 to 20 minutes. So when we've got an agitated patient, especially an undifferentiated agitated patient, the most valuable and the key characteristic for a chemical restraint agent is quick onset. So when you're looking at 5 to 10 minutes versus 15 to 20 minutes, to me there's a clear winner there, and that makes droperidol definitely a more desirable and better fit agent for an EMS system. But as emergency physicians, and I'm going to get into heresy, I think, where we might end up having to go to uh, ask for forgiveness and say some Hail Marys or something like that, because ketamine's the answer for everything. We are doctors. We go to the church of ketamine. We bow down to ketamine. And don't get me wrong, 
ketamine's great, but talk about when maybe ketamine isn't so great. Yeah, I think we need to start with uh, agreeing that not there is no one drug fits all. There's no one therapy fits all, and that's exact same with ketamine, right? Not every single agitated patient warrants ketamine dissociation, right? That's a big step. Some of these patients have uh, complete uh, apnea with it. It's rare, but it can happen. There's complications with it. And so we, we really want to target the right therapy, pharmacologic therapy, to the right patient. The majority of our undifferentiated agitation patients have some semblance of psychosis or disorganized thinking or disorganized bizarre behavior in their presentation. The thought behind droperidol is why don't we target the, the right medication to the right population of patients uh, for agitation. We're not gonna become EMS psychiatrists, right? Uh, but it just makes sense to use the right drug for the right indication. If many of our patients with undifferentiated agitation end up having some component for whatever reason of psychosis, then it just makes sense to use an antipsychotic medication like droperidol. As Casey said, it's very quick at onset, uh, makes it a winner uh, for us versus haloperidol or some of the other antipsychotics. But as we said before, very similar acting uh, in nature with its uh, centrally acting uh, uh, dopaminergic and serotonergic antagonism. But the biggest thing is one of its side effects, right? We want the sedation side effect from it, which all these medications have. Uh, you know, so we think that it's filling a specific pharmacologic gap uh, there uh, in our pharmacologic armamentarium here. So I guess, Casey, that would bring the next thing to me would be is, you know, we talked about psychosis and the presence of psychosis in the EMS patient population. But how do I pick those patients out to use droperidol versus one of our other medications like uh, midazolam or ketamine? This is never easy. This is a very difficult and, again, undifferentiated population. And we run on scenes. We meet folks at oftentimes very difficult situations, difficult moments. And it can be really tough to tease out the specific cause of their agitation. Oftentimes it's multifactorial. And honestly, we don't have the diagnostic time, capability, or you know, breadth to really, to really get there. But what we're going to ask the medics to start with, and really what we start with in the ED is emergency physicians, because we're in the same boat here. And that is, we have to consider agitation on a spectrum. And this is not my idea. If you've listened to us talk about way back on episode 21, using ketamine for chemical restraint here on the podcast, you know, a majority of these tenants were taken from various talks given by Dr. Ruben Strayer, about the agitation spectrum. Uh, this is, you know, we'll, we'll link one in the show notes. There are several out there. Uh, he really has summed this up better than I could, so there's no reason to, to try to reinvent it. Uh, but he puts agitation on a scale, basically like a, a color spectrum with green on one end and red on the other, and sort of that green to yellow to orange, orange to, to red as you progress from left to right. And there are some people down on that green end who simply need verbal de-escalation, a blanket, uh, a handheld, uh, you know, simple stuff, a cup of tea. That's the uh, agitated grandmother or grandfather in the memory home. They likely can be verbally de-escalated with a little bit of 
uh, kind tone and probably don't need ketamine dissociation, obviously. Then there, the other end of the spectrum, let's, let's skip all the way to the red end. You have the patients that you walk into the room and you realize with one nanosecond of thought that they are clearly a danger to themselves, a danger to us as the medics. And those patients still fall in that group of ketamine straight away. Why? Because ketamine is the quickest acting, acting agent that we have in our toolbox. And so we want that patient safely restrained as soon as possible. But that middle zone, that orange zone, which Dr. Dis Dr. Strayer describes as disruptive without danger, that's the key. That's those patients that we know are agitated that likely won't get on the stretcher, that may not submit to vital signs, that have that disorganized thinking that a lot of times uh, that may have substances on board as well. You know, if we think there's a component a behavioral health crisis there, mental health crisis, history, you know, from bystanders, you know, delusional thought, hallucinations, those can be some clues. Again, we feel like here at MCHD, it's a better idea to treat psychosis with an antipsychotic as opposed to a, as opposed to a dissociative anesthetic. And, you know, admittedly, anytime you deal with a spectrum, there's going to be blurry spots in between and there's, yeah, there's no always tweeners yeah there's it? no uh there's no black and white line here and there's going to be you know in our protocols we're going to have midazolam available we're going to have droperidol available along with ketamine and there's going to be judgment call that medics have to make and there's uh you know no black and white here it's not a 94 percent hard stop for passing rocuronium this is going to be hmm, okay the, the dad says he's got a history of schizophrenia He's clearly delusional and hallucinating. This seems to be more behavioral health in nature. Droperidol is a good fit versus glass shards, busted windows, uh, bleeding arms, and, and clearly dangerous. We're going to move straight to ketamine. So nuts and bolts time. What are our MCHD indications for droperidol, and how are we going to dose it once we make that decision? So indications are for acute undifferentiated agitation uh, in a little dose, big dose spectrum. So five milligrams for a littler person, 10 milligrams for a bigger person, and then nausea, vomiting, 1.25 milligrams for a little person, 2.5 milligrams for a big person. So pretty simple. I'd like to, to, when we talk about that though, to go back and when Casey's talking about this spectrum, right? Take it back to the patient. When we taught this in CE, Right. We have a, a duty, a responsibility to get there and rule out those serial killers for agitation. Right. There's a lot of bad actors that that live in there, like hypoglycemia, like an undifferentiated seizure disorder, like a toxin, like withdrawal, like an intracranial infection, like an intracranial bleed. Lots of nasty things. And one of the 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 most important things that we're charged with is to, to get control of the, the seeing the situation. Why? So we can look after the patient appropriately. So that's the why of why we're using this sedation. And one of the things we really stress in CE, which I think bears repeating, is that if you have like a very common scenario is we have someone in the custody of law enforcement. Patient is handcuffed. They are prone on the ground. Our first priority is to A, number one, do an assessment of the patient, try to get the patient set up if it's possible, get them out of that prone position of danger, right? And if they need some sedative, right, 
that patient to me would fit in that middle category, right? A handcuffed patient with two burly sheriff's officers around is not an immediate danger to neither themselves or or us, right? So if we can start with verbal de-escalation, we do that. But if we can't assess, treat, transport safely, that's a perfect patient for droperidol. And to me, that type of patient is one that, quite frankly, doesn't warrant ketamine dissociation when we have other tools in the toolbox. And I'll draw up, and this is this is why it's the gray zone. I can draw up that patient and make his or her heart rate 160 diaphoretic blood pressure of 240 and maybe we are in a, in a ketamine Correct. ketamine state you know yeah, there so is no 100 no 100 but I, for undifferentiated agitation where you feel like that patient is not an immediate danger to themselves or others doperidol is going to be a very very nice addition to our options because we can minimize our use of dissociation um what about the patients that's that's maybe psychotic and we'll get on the stretcher and cooperate. Are we using droperidol to treat psychosis? We're not in the treatment of psychosis business. You know, if we have a patient that is compliant and just a little delusional, we have those patients all the time, right? If they're going to let us get on with their assessment, then there's no need. And so I think it goes back to focusing in on every time we give any type of therapy, whether that be an intervention or a pharmacologic therapy, it, it entails some sense of risk for the patient. And so the less of that we can do, it's actually better. So in that patient, we have no need to fix that in the field. Now, if you have one of those patients that also has nausea, vomiting, has uh, abdominal pains with nausea, vomiting, things like that, and some type of overlying psychiatric illness, droperidol is a great option to treat that nausea, vomiting, that chronic abdominal pain, uh, that gastroparetic patient. Very, very good medication for that. Very effective. On the whole, I would say we want to keep Zofran our first line for most nausea and vomiting because it's not as sedating. And again, being key, we don't want to take schnockered patients to the ED over and over and over again. But again, that specific group, that cyclic vomiting, gastroparesis, chronic abdominal pain, those, you know, uh, underlying migraines even, droperidol is an excellent choice in those. So I say second line most of the time for most patients. What about side effects? So side effects, the common ones that we really want, sedation, right? We want the sedation side effect. That's why we're using the medication for the agitated group. And as Dr. Patrick said, that's why we're being very careful with it. And it's really not first line for just someone with some undifferentiated nausea. Why? Because I want to avoid that side effect. Even if the small doses, uh, if you're physiologically challenged, if you're elderly, this can be a quite a very sedating drug. So sedation, the next would be akathisia, which is this sense of uh, needing to get up and move around. It's very distressing for patients. It's very simply treated, but it's a fairly common side effect of not just droperidol, but all of the antipsychotic medications carry this potential side effect. How are you going to find this patient? You're going to notice this. This patient will not be able to sit still. They will not sit still in the stretcher. They'll feel uh, a very uneased. They'll feel like they have to be moving around quite a bit. It's a pretty easy fix. Uh, just we use diphenhydramine or Benadryl, uh, 25 to 50 milligrams IV. Uh, the next would be dystonia or these motor tics. It could be in any uh, motor group. 
Uh, a pretty uncommon side effect for a one shot of droperidol, but it can occur. The same uh, therapy uh, to, to uh, fix this, which is Benadryl 25 to 50. As you get into the more uncommon side effects, I'd say the least common or next least common would be hypotension. You don't see as much hypotension, but one of the receptors, the minor receptors this acts on is the alpha receptors. And so you do see some vasodilatory effects with this and you may see some hypotension. The most uncommon would be this neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is a syndrome uh, that looks like a serotonin syndrome. So it's a hyperdynamic hyperthermia, muscle rigidity, very, very uncommon. How do we treat that? Supportive measures. Uh, and then until we get the patient to the emergency department, we treat them with some other medications, but a very uh, unusual and rare complication. So most common to least common, sedation, the one we want, uh, akathisia, a sense of uh, need to always be moving around uh, hypotension, dystonia, fairly uncommon. You know, hypotension would simply be just treated with fluid bolus. And then the, the least common would be this neuroleptic malignant syndrome. You got a chance to say dantrolene and you passed it up. I did. <laughs> I did. But what about the black box? Is there a black box? There is a black box. Let's get to the black box. I mean, I think that this, you, you inferred uh, to it earlier in the podcast, Casey, that when Casey and I trained, uh, this was a very, very common. We used this medication all the time, and then it went away uh, for a period of about 15 years and has made a resurgence in the last five or six years. So talk about the black box and, and talk about the why of it and how, how the data, what the data shows uh, the risk is for torsades and other complications with this medication. Yeah, so first things first, the black box doesn't outlaw anything. The black box is just an FDA warning. So if we're going to protocolize a drug with a warning, it makes sense that we at least give you a little bit of background about the why and why we don't think this black box warning is probably even appropriate. There were 25 million doses of droperidol given across U.S. hospitals in 2000. So fairly com very commonly used. Uh, the black box was placed in 2001 by the FDA due to concern for polymorphic VT or torsades. The background on that black box, there's plenty of well-written articles out there. If you want to peruse the internet, you can. I'm going to stay neutral here and just say that there are some fairly big holes in some of those arguments and the reliability of that is questionable at best. So in the end, the concern was for torsades. So rather than rehashing the black box, let's look at what we know from actual data. And if you look at data collected between 2015 and 2020, at doses in that 5 to 10 milligram range, which what's what we're using, and these come out of the most reputable and well-known droperidol research groups that exist. Uh, Dr. Calver in Australia has published tons on this. Dr. John Cole at Hennepin in Minneapolis, they probably have the largest U.S. Uh, patient group of droperidol-treated patients. And when you combine all of their numbers, thousands and thousands, 29,000 actually, more than 29,000 patients, and look at episodes of torsades, over those five years, there was one single episode. If you look at 
Zofran or Ondansetron, Reglan, Metoclopramide, Finergan, Promethazine, uh, the risk of torsades is higher with all three of those drugs. So whether or not there's a black box or not, what we feel like as medical directors, what I feel like is that the evidence doesn't support any increased risk with droperidol for torsades as compared to any of our other antipsychotics, anti-agitation medications, sedation medications, or uh, anti-emetics. So from that standpoint, we need to be aware. We need to be monitoring our sedated patients appropriately. And obviously, if we see polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, we know how to treat that with magnesium and or electricity. Um, you know, minding our 12 lead after we sedate patients and taking a look at the QT. But as far as being handcuffed by a black box warning that's not based in any real literature that I can see, this, this medication is going to have much more benefit to our patients than if we leave it, you know, boxed up because of whatever happened back in 2001. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think it goes back to the patient, right? These are very dangerous patients. We reviewed their differential, right? There's lots of, of killers that live there. So our priorities are not to get an EKG before we gain control. We're going to, to gain control so we can check a blood sugar, do a proper exam, try to gather more history. And it, at some point in that, in that workup, we are going to get a 12-lead EKG, right, on all these toxin patients to look for other bad things, not just prolonged QT from the medication we gave, but how about for evidence of sodium channel blockers like TCAs and overdoses and, uh, you know, uh, other uh, abnormalities in the EKG, bradycardias and maybe some cardiotoxins. So we're going to get an EKG. It's just not the immediate priority. Control to protect the patient is the priority so we can allow a workup of that patient. So the most important thing. But doctor, those, you know, Dr. Cole's group, Dr. Calvert's group, all those are in hospital. Those are in ED. What about EMF, EMS evidence? Are you giving some medicine too early when there's no foundation there to back that up? And like most cool things out there, the Australians tend to, tend to hop on the cool train first. Uh, Australians are always cooler than us uh, silly Yankees. But Dr. Page's group in Australia uh, published in pre-hospital emergency care in 2018. Not that I want to drill everybody's brains dull and uh, mushy with study information, but this is a prospective study that compared droperidol to midazolam, hey, our drug, and our other drug, uh, 150 patients in each group. The patients were agitated secondary to alcohol. Is that common? You yeah. ever see that? Very, very common. Yeah. So similar patient populations, same drugs as we have in our in our toolbox. And what they found to continue the evidence for this being a good choice, droperidol was quicker than midazolam and had one-third the adverse events. So not only was it quicker, it appeared to be safer than good old tried and true, everybody's comfortable with and is used for years, midazolam. Um, what did they look at for adverse events? They looked at low respiratory rate, respiratory depression. They looked at hypoxic episodes, airway maneuver use. So did we have to chin lift or draw, jaw thrust and dystonia? And the rate of adverse events was 23% in the midazolam group and 7% in the droperidol group. So to me, no, that's not 1,500 patients or 15,000 patients, but that's a well-established EMS research group. That's a prospective study. That's midazolam versus droperidol, so our drugs, 
in our population, you know, patients with agitation related to alcohol use. So to me, there's evidence there both in EMS and tons and tons and tons of in-hospital evidence. So what's what's the future hold, Dr. Dixon, for Doperidol here at MCHD? We've rolled out a new protocol. We've rolled out a new medica- medication. How do we go forward? Yeah, great question, Casey. And this this is all part of it. Right. We're going to recycle some of this and do a real time on the road, what we call on the road CE. So we're going to assign this three or four months after the initial training to our crews and see to make sure and assess, are we retaining the crucial information uh, about droperidol and about managing the agitated uh, patient uh, that we want them to retain? So that's number one is to really just drill this and keep keep drilling this home. You can't educate enough, I think, about this this subset of patients because it's one of the most dangerous that we encounter. Uh, so like anything else we're going to do right now, I just got done this week reviewing uh, the charts, the administrations. We've got about a dozen so far, all very appropriate uh, and about mixed half and half indications, some for acute agitation, some for nausea, vomiting. Very, very effective. Haven't had any fallouts, but 100% review. Uh, initially, even uh, early on with any intervention, I think that that warrants 100% review. We're going to look at the data and see, do we need to make any changes in the protocol? Are we over-sedating? Are we having any adverse events that we didn't anticipate from the other studies? Um, so that's, that's the most important there. And then we're going to try to follow these for ED outcomes and say, is this an effective medication? While we're on that, one of the things that that we did here was we communicated that with our ED partners. And I think, remember, as Casey said, this medication has really not been used widely in the last 15, 20 years, and is just now coming back in the last five years. So there's a lot of ED providers that may not be familiar with this medication. So, you know, make sure that if, if you bring it into your service, I think that's one of the important things is communication with your external partners to say, hey, guys, we're bringing in this new uh, medication. Here's the why behind it. Please let us know if, if you see any fallouts, any unanticipated uh, complications with it. We hope that we will uh, co- be able to uh, collect a, a, a data set and to get this in peer review, which is kind of has has been consistently over, over our uh, and really before us here. When you have a quality initiative, I think you have the responsibility to follow it, to make sure that you're not having any unanticipated events, and to share that data with other people in both peer-reviewed and professional publications, which is typically the way that, that we've done it here. Yeah, absolutely. And in the end, this has officially made me feel old as I have partners now who didn't, are, you know, again, this may be an emergency physician or emergency nurse, uh, you know, folks that finished residency and. 2018 never used this drug it's just back on the market really in the last probably two years and hospitals you know especially in the middle of the pandemic aren't exactly going out and ordering new drugs like crazy so you're highly likely to run into doctors and nurses who may be unfamiliar and may have never used it so definitely that communication piece is important one question that i got throughout discussion with medics on this was well what if it doesn't work which honestly my honest answer is at five to 10 milligrams, it will. But inevitably, at some point, I'm going to eat those words and it won't. So what do you what do you tell the medics? Be patient, right? The number one thing is this is we're adding a new medication, but this is very similar 
to the onset of midazolam, a little bit quicker than midazolam, but similar. So this is not the patient who, once you give a four per kilo IM shot of ketamine, you expect complete dissociation within a couple of minutes, right? This is a patient that's going to be slowly sedated over five to 10 minutes to max sedation. So you've got to be patient. Remember, this is for the patient that is not in immediate danger, right? They are restrained. Uh, they don't have vastly abnormal bottle signs or behavior that makes it quite dangerous to allow them to continue it. So remember, they're in this middle ground of disruptive, uh, needing a workup for their agitation without immediate danger. If you have to add another medication, my, my go-to is to add midazolam. I don't keep adding other doses of droperidol. Uh, I, I don't think if it, if it didn't warrant ketamine before, I don't think I would recommend ever going up if the danger has not changed, understanding that these are fluid patients, and sometimes that may change. They may become dangerous. Uh, but that would be my advice is to be patient, you know, turn off your ketamine clock. This is going to be the midazolam droperidol clock. Time is on our side with these patients, right? If they're, if they're restrained and not immediately dangerous to themselves, we have time. That brings us probably to the point to wrap up, summarize. Fair uh, enough. Anything else you want to add? No, I think no. so. So in the end, your elevator speech when you're asking in the hospital, what are your crazy medical directors doing with some drug I've never heard of called droperidol? It's really a two-part sentence. Number one, psychosis is better treated with an antipsychotic than a dissociative agent. And we're trying to minimize our use of ketamine if at all possible unless the patient is in immediate danger to themselves or others and to me that sentence is pretty unassailable it's tough to tough to get around that one you know trying to more appropriately use ketamine seems to be a goal we should all have so again indications undifferentiated agitation five to ten milligrams can repeat times one nausea and vomiting 1.25 to 2.5 milligrams can repeat times one Big little dosing, if you're elderly, if you're smaller, if you're concerned, always err on the small side. Always err on the low end. You can always give a second dose. You can't take out the extra that you wish you hadn't given when the patient is over-sedated. Like everything else we talk about on the podcast, everything else we talk about in emergency medicine, beware in our older population, drug uptake and metabolism is just slower so unanticipated outcomes and, and side effects are magnified. So be on that smaller end of dosing, especially in the elderly. All sedated patients, no matter what we're giving them, whether it's droperidol, ketamine, or midazolam, once we get them controlled and we get them settled, the goal was to be able to evaluate and transport them appropriately. So we have to do that evaluation. We have to get vital signs. We have to get an exam, full monitoring, 12 lead, and blood glucose every single time. That's not specific to droperidol, but it definitely applies. And then lastly, put on your midazolam clock. You're going to be pleasantly surprised because droperidol is going to be quicker. As with everything else here at the podcast or, and within the clinical department, if you have questions, you'd like to see our protocols, uh, ideas for future podcasts, please shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Thanks, Dr. Dixon, for joining us today. Thank everybody out there for listening or watching on YouTube. 
and we'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.